Rachel woke up on New Year's Day. She was uh, still hungover from partying a little bit too hard the night before, much like most of her holidays and weekends were. And uh, she laid there in her bed thinking on this New Year's Day, not how excited she was about the new year, not about her college graduation that just took place a few months before, but she lay there thinking about all the, the failures that she'd had, the, the broken promises that she'd made to herself the year before. And so as she got up and as she stumbled her way into the kitchen looking for some Tylenol to take care of her headache, she, she came across a piece of paper that just said New Year's resolutions on it, yet it was blank. And so she sat down at the table and she immediately began thinking about all of last year's resolutions that she had made and how she hadn't kept a single one of them. And she began to think about what she wanted for her life over the next year. And as she thought, there was one, one thing that kept rolling around in her mind, and it was, I need to get my life together, but how do I do that? How do I do that? And so she started thinking of what she might write down. And after she sat there for a while, she only wrote one thing down, get my life together. And she didn't know what that meant, but as she thought about it for the next few days, she thought, you know, I noticed that people who go to church, they tend to have their life together, so I think I'll go to church. So she set her alarm that Sunday morning. She, the alarm goes off. She hits the snooze button because she's not used to waking up. She hits the snooze button, and before she realizes it, she, it's time for her to go. So she jumps out of bed. She runs to her closet. She begins rummaging through all the short skirts and low-cut tops that she, just weeks before she was wearing to the bars to get the attention of men. And she's trying to find the most appropriate things she can find. So she finally finds the longest skirt that she owns, and it comes up three or four inches above her knee, but it's the longest thing she owns. She finds the most appropriate top. Uh, it's a little tight, but it's, it doesn't uh, come down low, and so she puts that on. She grabs her heels and her car keys, and she's out the door. She gets to the church, and she has no idea where to go. She doesn't know what door to enter in, where to park, so she ends up parking in the gas station across the street and then decides to just follow a group of people that are making their way in. As she sits down and the worship service begins, she realizes that the only person who said anything to her that morning was the man who handed her bulletin and just said, good morning. After the service, she gathers her things and begins to make her way out. While she's walking through the lobby, she hears a voice behind her say, excuse me, miss. And she stops and she turns around and she's excited because she's, she sees another woman walking towards her and she thinks, maybe I'm going to make a new friend. Maybe she's going to ask me to go to lunch with her and her family. The lady pulls her over to the side and says, I just wanted to ask you, didn't your mother ever tell you it's not appropriate to wear clothes like that at church? Rachel never went back to that church. The problem that I have with the local church, and I could say this because I'm a pastor, but the problem that I have with the local church is that so often churches are designed for church people. Right? We've all experienced that. We've all been there before. And, and I can admit this. I grew up in the church. I'm a church people. Uh, you know, church people are the ones who can find the book of Nehemiah as fast as the pastor's wife. Right? They know where to park. They know all the songs. They know when to sit down and when to stand up. Right? Church people. I'm a church people. And most of us here, we can say it. We're church people. In fact, let's say it together. We're 
church people, right? Most of us are church people. But the problem with churches being designed for church people is that sometimes we want to invite someone to church who's not a church people. In fact, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, uh, you know what, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. And the reason you're uncomfortable is because you're not a church people and churches are usually designed for church people, right? And I actually just had an experience with this. One of my good friends from high school, he's two years older than me. He's my brother's age, but uh, I was kind of a tag along with my brother. Uh, When you're a freshman and your brother can drive and all his friends can drive, then your freshman friends aren't so cool anymore. You go hang out with the older kids. So Nick uh, is my good friend and uh, he, we would go to the gym. We'd be at the, the high school gym at 6 a.m. in the morning. He was a football player. He'd show me stuff, how to get stronger and all this. And uh, so Nick was always a good friend of mine. And over the last couple of years, I've kind of kept up with him on Facebook and um, have just seen a lot of the hurt and struggles and different things taking place in his life. And the one thing that I've wanted for Nick more than anything is that he would come to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. And this past December, last year, I saw that Nick put his trust in Christ as his Savior. And I was reading about how he's growing in his faith, how he's, he's reading Scripture, and he's, he's just growing big chunks of Scripture, like an entire book in one day of, of Scripture. And uh, he's just loving it. And then all of a sudden, as I thought about Nick, and all my excitement left me, a sense of dread came over me. Because I realized that now that Nick's a Christian, he's got to go where? To church, right? What kind of church is he going to go to? Like, he, he may not know. He may not have anyone to bring him to a, a good church. And what if he goes to a church and, and there's special music? And he doesn't understand that special music in the church world means that someone who would never be allowed to sing in any other context is going to get up and sing, right? And they're probably going to say, the Lord gave me this song, which is spiritual code word, church talk, for um, this is going to be really bad, but you're going to have to listen to it anyways, Right? And he's not going to understand that the reason this person is allowed to get up and do the special music is because she's the chairman of the deacon's daughter. And he probably doesn't even know who the chairman of the deacon, what that is. And he doesn't care. So he's going to sit there. He's going to listen to some song and some special music by someone who has no business being up there singing. And then the preacher's going to get up. And in his hour-long sermon, he's going to give 15 points that all begin with the letter R. And Nick's going to sit there and try to figure out why is everything rhyme and begin with the letter R. I don't get it. I'm lost. Thankfully, I I had a chance to connect with Nick. And uh, he found a great church. And none of that happened. But uh, let's be honest, how many of you have ever had that fear or, or experienced something like that? Like you bring someone to church and you're like, oh man, I can't believe they're doing this. And you're trying to explain to them everything that's going on over here on the side. And the reason for this is the gravitational pull of every local church is towards insiders. Right? That's just the way it is. The gravitational pull is towards insiders. And if we're not careful, it would be easy for us to become a church designed for church people. And the problem with that is that when we think about it, and when, when the people around us think about church being for church people, they might begin to think that if the church is for church people, that maybe Christianity is only for church people. And if Christianity is for church people, then maybe Jesus only died for church people. But none of us believe that, do we? No, we don't. In fact, we can all probably recite this verse together. It's the first verse that I learned, probably the first verse that many of you learned. For God so loved the 
world, right? It doesn't even say, for God so loved the church people. It doesn't say, God so loved the people who can find the book of Nehemiah as fast as the pastor's wife. It doesn't say, for God so loved the people who know where to park. They know how to get in. They know how to get out and beat everybody else to the restaurants. It doesn't say that. It says, God so loved the world. And so we have to do everything in our, in our power to make sure that we aren't pulled to, to become a church for insiders, right? Because God loved the world. We want to be a church that is for everyone. Yet without meaning to, if we're not careful, it's easy to get distracted by those other things. The church is for everyone. It's a place for everyone, right? So what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 15 is that this is nothing new. Like we are not the first generation to struggle with this. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, Uh, 15, we're going to see the very first church business meeting. Now, how many of you here have ever been to a church business meeting? They are not very exciting, are they? They are the most boring thing in the entire world that you could ever go to. The only time church business meetings are exciting is when there's a what? When there's a fight, I heard it in the back. When there's a fight, it's exciting, man. Then you don't want to miss it. When there's a problem in the church, you know there's going to be a fight at that business meeting. Everybody shows up because you get in free, right? You come down front. You sit up front. uh, You get there early. You get the best seat in the house because you know something's about to go down. And then for the next two hours, you watch adults act like children as they argue in the name of Jesus and in the name of religion over what color the walls should be, right? Like, that's how it goes down. And so we have this very first church business meeting in Acts chapter 1. And and we think about our church, you know, church business meetings that most of us go to where there's a fight. And then we wonder, like, why does nobody want to go to our church? Well, that's why. Uh, But we've got this, this issue that they're wrestling with. And it's the issue of who is this for? Who is the church for? And they're going to wrestle through that in this chapter And what's great is that we have some of the people who were closest to Jesus, who witnessed all of Jesus' life and his miracles and his ministry uh, that are going to be a part of this discussion. You've got Peter, who was like Jesus' right-hand man. And then you've got James. And you've got the Apostle Paul who's going to show up. And they're wrestling with this question of who is this for. Let's look at verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, I have led every single membership seminar or been a part of every single membership seminar that we've ever had at River Rock Bible Church, and I can tell you, none of the expectations for membership here require surgery. Can we get an amen on that? right? None of the expectations of, of this church require surgery, but there were some men who were saying, look, if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be in a relationship with God, you have to be circumcised, which means that the new member seminar was primarily comprised of women and young children. Um, the husbands are in the cars saying, you know, honey, I just don't know that this church thing is for me. I need to think about it a little more, right? So they're out there, and, and uh, they're waiting, and the wives go in, But what we see is that this is the very first church division. The very first church division, and it's over, who is this for? We've already seen, like the wrapping paper of the church is not even off yet. They don't even have it off yet. This car has not even been driven off the lot. Jesus just left not long ago, and they're already having this discussion because the gravitational pull is towards the insiders. And in this case, it's the Jewish people. 
right? The Jewish people, the ones who know the laws. They know how to act. They know when to sit down. They know when to stand up. And they're saying, this is for us. This is for us. If you want to be, be a part of this, you've got to become like us. Let's see what happens. We got Paul and Barnabas show up here in, chat, in verse 2. But after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, the church arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some others of them to go up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. So we have Paul and Barnabas who are out, and they've been planting churches and preaching the gospel throughout the, the area, and they've been primarily going to places where there are Gentiles who are not Jewish. And so they get into it, and they, they start arguing with these people who are saying, no, 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 they have to become Jewish first. And finally the church decides, you know what, let's send them up to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, right? Every church has a they, right? You've been to a church before, you know there's always a they. Every organization has a they. And in this case, the they are the apostles, the ones who witness Jesus' ministry, right? And so they're the ones who, they don't have to wear the WWJD bracelet because they know what Jesus would do. They were there, right? They, they know it. So they say, look, let's get these guys involved. Let's ask them, see what they say, and let's, let's find out where we need to go. Do you have to become Jewish before you can become a Christian? So we have the very first church business meeting, and it's well attended because there's a fight, right? So everybody shows up at this business meeting. Here's what it says in verse 4. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders. They reported all that God had done with them. All right, so they're coming in and they're saying, look, here is what we have experienced. Here is what we have seen God do. We're just going to testify to what we've seen God do and we're going to let you guys make the decision. And then it says, but some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up. All right, the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like the perennial bad guys in the New Testament, right? We know this. They're like the empire from Star Wars. They're the bad guys. They're like the, Volk, the, uh, the Klingons in Star Trek, right? These are the bad guys. Everybody knows that these are the bad guys. But what we see here is it says that some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the ones who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. They were behind it. They wanted to get rid of him. And yet what we have here is that we have the same people who just a few weeks ago were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus have now put their trust in Jesus as their Savior. They're now following him. How does this happen? There's only one answer, and that's the resurrection, right? So they, they make sure that Jesus is crucified, he's dead, he's in the grave. A couple days later, they see him walking around, and they say to each other, I think we got this one wrong right? And they change their mind and they become followers of Jesus. So that's a pretty big deal. So if you've got any questions about Christianity, to me, that is a strong case for the reliability and validity of Christianity. And they say this, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. All right? So they're saying that if you're going to become a Christian, you first have to become like us. You have to keep all of the law. Let's see what happens next. Jump down to verse 7. It says, And after there had been much debate, so it's a long meeting, much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. 
All right, so Peter's saying, hey, remember a couple chapters back in Acts chapter 10 when God comes to me through an angel and says, um, get up and eat, and it's this picture of, it's a vision of a pig, and then he realizes that God's wanting him to go to the Gentiles, and a man named Cornelius sends for him to come and come into his house, and Peter's like, I'm not going there, I'm not going there, I'm not going there, and then finally God gets a hold of him, and he's like, okay, I need to go there. Like, God is calling me to go to the Gentiles, and he's reminding them of this, that don't you remember that God called me to preach to the Gentiles? And then in verse 8, he says, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them by giving the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. All right, so they've got the Holy Spirit, and this has got to be shocking for the Jews especially the Pharisees, because for so long they thought that the Holy Spirit was meant only for them. And so this kind of catches them by surprise. But let's see what happens next. In verse 9, it says, He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by what? Faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? So when he talks about the disciples, he's not talking about the twelve. He's talking about the believers who, who are followers of Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles together. Why are you putting this yoke on their neck? By yoke, he means burden. He's talking about the 613 or 14 laws of the Old Testament of Moses, right? We all know the Ten Commandments, but they broke it down and they looked and looked and studied and studied and they came up with 613 or 614 different laws that you had to keep. And now the Pharisees were the experts in the law. They were the ultimate insiders. They were the ones who strived really, really hard to keep the law. And Peter looks at him and he says, look, why are you going to put these 613 or 14 laws on these other people when we ourselves couldn't even keep them? Like, hey, Frank, in the back, you were raised in this, right? You were raised in the synagogue, yet you've made sacrifices before you came to know Christ, right? I saw you at the temple. You never were able to keep the law perfectly, were you? Well, no. Jim. Jim, it wasn't that long ago that I saw you going to the temple. You were carrying your goat, and you were going to make your sacrifices. You haven't been able to keep the law perfectly either, have you? Well, no. At this point, it falls silent. It falls silent in the meeting. Everyone understands that something is happening here. When we look down at verse 11, it says, On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way they are. We are saved by grace through faith. It's that simple. The same for us as it is for them. Now what happens next is Paul and Barnabas get up and they begin sharing some of their experiences, a little bit more of their experience. And then James, who is the brother, he's, he's the brother of who? Does anybody know? Brother of Jesus, right? So he's got kind of special standing because he's the brother of Jesus. James is going to stand up, and James is actually kind of the head of the church in Jerusalem at this time. Now, here's the thing about James. He didn't come to be a believer in Christ until later on, right? We know that early on he wasn't a believer, and it was later on. And here's the thing. Here's another testament to Christianity. Just think about this. What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the Son of God? Like seriously, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the Son of God? I know for me, I mean, I love my big brother and everything, but 
I'm, it would be like, you know, I see you walking on the water. I saw the water to wine. Those are good tricks, but you're not the son of God. Come on. We grew up together. I know this. Why are you guys listening to him? Like, yeah, he was dead. He, he's walking around, but come on. He's not the son of God. This is my brother. You guys don't know him like I know him. He's, he's not the son of God. Yet James becomes a believer, right? And so we, James then becomes one of the leaders in the church. And skip down to verse 19. This is what he says. Therefore, in my judgment, and when he says in my judgment, James is saying this is the ruling. This is the decision. In my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Did you catch that? This should be like the marching order of every local church. Some translations, I think the NIV says, let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. He's saying, look, we need to remove every stumbling block out of the way that would cause someone to come to a church and and trip over the stumbling blocks. But here's the deal. The cross itself is a stumbling block. And that is one that we must not remove. The cross itself is a stumbling block. And what he's saying is, look, let's get rid of the other distractions and things that might cause people to bail out before they even get to the cross. Because we know from Scripture that that it's okay if people struggle and they wrestle and they grapple with the issue of the cross and salvation by grace through faith. That's okay. If that's the thing that turns them off, that's fine. What we've got to be careful of is that what we're doing, the way we approach things, aren't the things that turn people off. We want to give them the chance to wrestle with the cross. We don't want them walking away before they've even approached the cross. Right? So he goes on. He says, let's not make it difficult for those who are turning. And I love what he says here. He doesn't say turning to Christ. He doesn't say turning to faith. He says those who are turning to God. Those who are turning to God, let's not make it difficult. Let's do everything we can to help them move forward so that they can grow in their knowledge, in their intimacy, in their relationship with God. Let's make it easy for them. Verse 20, he says this, 21. For since the, uh, uh, therefore in my judgment, verse 20, but instead we should write to them, to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything, uh, anything that has been strangled, and from blood. All right, so he gives, breaks it down. He's going to sum up the law in a, in a couple of easy things. He's saying, look, let's, let's be sensitive to those who are already inside the church, and let's give them a couple, uh, let's give them just some of the basic moral laws that we can, we could all agree are good things. And he says, let's also not offend those who are already in the church, right? So they don't, they don't just throw everything out. They say, look, there are some things that we need to ask them to do that as believers they need to be doing. Not as a way to come to faith, but as those who've put their trust in Christ, here are some of the things that they ought to be doing, abstaining from, right? So that we can be sensitive to those that are already in the church, the Jewish believers. And he gives them just three simple things. But let's not put all 614 laws on them and keep them from coming to faith. And then we see in verse 30 and 31, it says, then, uh, so they, they write this letter, they draft up the letter, and they send them out, and they're getting ready to, 
to go. It says, uh, they send them back to the synagogues. He says, for since the ancient times, Moses has, has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogue. So he gives the reason here. He says, look, people throughout this region, they know the laws. They know the word of Moses, and we want to be sensitive to them also. We want to make sure that we don't do anything that would keep them from coming to faith. But again, we're not going to put all 614 laws on them. So they write a letter. They draft it up. The people in Antioch are waiting for this letter to arrive, anxiously awaiting what is the decision. The men are about to decide whether they're in or they're out for Christianity. Um, And so in verse 30, it says this. Then being sent off, they went down to Antioch. And after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. I love this. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And I wrote down here, especially the men right? So the decision comes back. Look, you don't have to be circumcised to become a believer. And they send that letter off, and it's encouraging to the believers. It's encouraging to those who hear it. So what we see is very early on, we've got this struggle of who is the church for? Who is this for? Is it for the insiders or for the outsiders? And again, I love what James says. Let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Let's not make it difficult. Uh, unfortunately, it was just a few generations later in 1091 that the Pope, the head of the church at the time, uh, he declared war against unbelievers and sends men, women, and children to fight in Jerusalem and to kill many innocent people and reclaim some land. A few generations later in the 1400s in the Spanish Inquisition, it was people acting in the name of the church who killed and tortured many people just so they could grab land, having nothing to do with the gospel. They were just making it difficult for people to come. And then we have the Reformation, and there's this rebirth and renewal. People are are re-embracing the idea that you can come to faith uh, through Christ alone, and it's very simple, and you can have that personal, intimate relationship with God. And things are good again. They they uh, They take away the difficulties. They say, look, here's the one thing trust in Christ. That's it. And then not long after that, we have the birth of denominations, and it becomes difficult again. The gravitational pull of the local church is always towards insiders, and we must do everything in our strength to be sure that we're not making difficult for those who are turning to God. The vision of River Rock Bible Church is to go into our community and allow every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. The church is for everyone because the gospel is for everyone. The church is for everyone because the gospel is for everyone. Every single one of us is invited. Every single one of us can meet the requirements. We have here this ladder. You'll notice that this ladder is missing a few rungs. See, most churches, when they design a church, when they begin forming a church, what happens is we end up with these top couple rungs where you've got the people who can find Nehemiah as fast as the preacher's wife. They know how to get in and get out and beat everyone else to the restaurants, right? We've got churches that are designed for church people. But let's be a church that puts all the rungs back in the ladder. 
We want to be a church that puts all the rungs back in the ladder, where we have a place for those who are wrestling with the gospel, for those who are, who are just not even sure about the scripture, and whether it's the word of God or not. And we want to have all these rungs so that we can see people continually move closer and closer in their relationship with God. And we want to see people at all times, in all places, being engaged in the life of this church. Because the gospel is for everyone, right? The gospel is for everyone. The invitation is open to everyone. And everyone can meet the requirements. What is the requirement? Faith. Faith in Christ alone. Simply saying, I'm putting my trust in Christ and Christ alone as my Savior. That's it. That's the one requirement. My challenge to us is, is that as we go out, that, that we would know what it is God has called us to do. That we would have stories of people whose lives are being changed. People who are drawing closer and closer to God. Now, here's my challenge for, for the church people, right? Church people like me, like you know what felt felt boards are. Um, you know what a quarterly is. You know what a Sunday school lesson is. You, you bring your tithe to the church in your little envelope, right, church people? Here's my challenge. Let's be a church. Let's be a generation that puts all the rungs back in the ladder. Because the church is for everyone. Because the gospel is for everyone. We want to reach every man, woman, and child with the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. Let's be a church for everyone. Let's do as James said. Let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. At this time, Stephen has, uh, uh, and Todd in the back there, have some little handouts that we have for you. Um, We've got enough for every family to take one. And on this sheet are just a couple of ideas of how we can take this conversation further. How we can move on as a uh, raise your hand if you would like one of these. It's, it's got some information, some things on here for you to discuss with your friends, family, your small group. Um, and it's also got some ideas of things that we need to be aware of as individuals. Because, right, we don't go to church, we are the church, right? And so as the church, we need to be aware of our own actions and our own uh, steps in what we're doing and be aware if there's anything in our lives personally that is turning people off from God, that's making it difficult for those who are coming to God. So we've got these for you. You can just look through those, read through those. Um, It's good stuff. Um, I really enjoyed going through it this week and and looking over that. made me think a lot. And uh, what I'd like to do now is for you to just take two. Um, At the end of the message, we'd like for you to take two minutes and just reflect on what is God saying to you this morning. Maybe you're a church person and God is saying to you, hey, do you realize when you come in and you sit down and don't talk to anybody that maybe there's someone who needs you to talk to them? And maybe you're realizing that this morning that, hey, I'm going to make an effort to talk to two new people every week when I come. Um, Maybe you're not a church person And if you're not a church person, I want you to know that you are in a church that is committed to putting all the rungs back on the ladder. We want to not make it difficult for you to come to God. We hope that the only thing that you wrestle with at this church is the cross of Christ and who Jesus Christ is. And so maybe for you, you write down, you know what, God is saying to me that that I need to make a commitment to come. 
I need to make a commitment to get involved, get into a couple things. And then underneath that in your bulletin, you can write an I will statement of what you're going to do about it. So just during this time, take two and reflect on what God is saying. Father, we thank you uh, that, that there's only one requirement to come to you, which is faith in your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.